Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God for our study this Sunday is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I conclude that our sufferings at the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. In fact, creation is waiting with eager longing for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that even creation itself will be set free from slavery to corruption, in order to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that all creation is groaning with birth pains right up to the present time. And not only creation, but we also, ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, while we eagerly await our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. Indeed, it was this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for something we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patient endurance. This is the word of our Lord. Dear children of God, it's a question that's raised by both questioning believers and fault-finding unbelievers. If God is so good, so powerful, so loving, why are things so messed up? The skeptics ask with the intention of either blaming God or proving that he doesn't really exist. Believers ask with their own suffering seem to be more than they can bear. In our text from Romans today, the Apostle Paul addresses this question head on. He doesn't answer it the way many people might expect. He doesn't just tell them to suck it up or shake it off. And he doesn't even tell them to just have more faith. Instead, he encourages us by example to change our perspective and get the big picture on suffering. He takes a very realistic view of this messed up world we live in, but it's a long view. This contrast between common human view of faith and suffering and a biblical and godly one is echoed in this exchange. A woman called in to a pastor's radio show. The pastor was a wise, grandfatherly gentleman who has that calm, reassuring voice that can melt all fear. The lady, who was obviously crying, said, Pastor, I was born blind. I've been blind all my life. I don't even mind being blind, but I have some well-meaning friends who tell me that if I just had more faith, I could be healed. The pastor paused and asked her, tell me, do you carry one of those white canes? Yes, she replied. Well, the next time someone says that, hit them over the head with a cane and just tell them if they had more faith, that wouldn't have hurt. You see, Paul does, doesn't tell us to forget about or ignore our present suffering. He invites us to consider them in all their ugly reality. 
But he also compares them to the glory that awaits us when Christ returns and takes us to heaven. And when we do that, those sufferings fade into insignificance. But the apostle doesn't just leave it at that. He gives us some more and bigger perspective. He moves away from our own personal problems to discussing all creation. Paul makes clear that the reason creation has been subjected to frustration and decay is because God willed it. Yes, all creation was cursed with Adam and Eve with their sin, when their sin brought death into this world. But it didn't have to be that way. God made it happen because he wanted man to see and live with the consequences of his rebellion. And to be reminded, therefore, of his need to return to God in repentance and faith. But Paul reveals here that God also had a gospel motivation in cursing the earth along with us. He wanted it to help move us to look for him for redemption and to eagerly look forward to being set free from sin's effects forever, forever when Christ returns. But that hasn't happened yet. So in the meantime, all creation groans. It suffers. It decays. And no one's going to argue that point. It's too obvious when we look around and see floods and earthquakes, disease and deterioration, extinction and pollution, drought, famine, storms, and more. Even the laws of thermodynamics support this observation. Physics teaches us, basically, things fall apart. It seems to be programmed into all the universe. And so creation, personified, eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God, because that will mean the end of its frustration. That's not something we should have too much trouble picturing. Think of the eager waiting of a sports fan whose team hasn't won a championship in generations, or the thousands who sometimes line up for hours to get the latest and greatest new piece of tech. And in both of those examples, you know the frustration, the waiting, the seemingly endless delay in seeing things turn out the way they're supposed to. Some would even call that suffering. And creation groans as it suffers and waits, as though it's in the pains of childbirth. And that's a perfect image, because it recognizes that after all that pain comes something wonderful, something new, a child, a new and perfect creation. We groan too. We don't have to tell you what suffering is like. Most of us know that firsthand. Maybe it's seeing our world spin out of control. Perhaps, perhaps it's the pain of a relationship that didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. Maybe it's abuse that you have suffered at the hands of someone you trusted. Perhaps it's a loss of a job or your health, or a loved one. What most of us 
don't know so well, and we thank God for this, is persecution. Intense suffering, precisely because we follow Christ. But there are many believers in this world who do know persecution, and we groan with them as we consider the difference difference between things as they are and as they should be. And so we too wait eagerly with the whole creation for our, adop- for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. Now that idea can sometimes be confusing. Didn't Jesus already redeem us? Aren't we already God's children through faith in Christ, his son? Yes, and yes, but there's more to come. Let's review. To redeem means to buy back, usually in the sense of ransoming someone out of captivity. We, the whole world, every person who ever lived, with the exception of Jesus himself, were in bondage to sin and Satan. Not only did our sins place us under immeasurable debt of guilt, but we were slaves to sin. By nature, we couldn't do anything but sin. There was nothing good in us, which meant we had nothing to offer in exchange for our freedom. Someone else had to pay that price. And that someone was Jesus. He paid the price. He redeemed us at the cost of his own life, which he gave up on the cross. He suffered and died to save us, taking the punishment for our sins even though he was perfect. He earned forgiveness for us. And then he put the seal of our salvation on the third day when he rose from the dead. He conquered death for us too. All who put their trust in him will also rise with him in heaven's perfect bliss. He did this all out of love. We did not and do not deserve any of it. But that's the grip of grace. He's got us. He won't let go. Christ redeemed us because he loved us. But we're not in heaven yet. How then do we know all this is true? Because we have the Holy Spirit and all his gifts right now. We have faith. We have comfort. We have the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. Paul tells us here to think of the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. If God kept that promise, which he did, he will also keep his promise to bring us to paradise with Jesus. And that will be what we call our full and final redemption. While there's nothing unfinished about the work Jesus did on the cross or in rising from the dead, in a sense it is incomplete. We still live in a world of sin, with bodies of sin, subject to all the effects of sin. And so we groan, we suffer, and so we wait for Christ's return when he will judge the wicked and claim believers as his own. 
We wait for that eagerly. Seriously compare your life today, no matter how good it might seem, to the perfection that awaits us in paradise. And yes, that expectation becomes an excited, can't hardly wait one. But we do wait, and we hope, and we do it patiently, because no matter how bad things get, we know something infinitely better, something perfect, something glorious, is just around the corner. Patience doesn't come naturally, though, and our society encourages the exact opposite. Everything we hear and see, it seems, encourages instant gratification. Don't have cash on hand? Withdraw from the ATM. Can't afford the latest new gadget, appliance, or car? Don't worry. You can have it now, on credit, zero down, and a lifetime to pay for it. Don't like what's on TV? Change the channel. Feeling frustrated? You can find whatever you want on the internet. We tend to bring that same attitude into our spiritual lives. We look for instant glory here on earth. Comfort, success, pleasure, maybe even wealth. We don't want to wait for heaven. And when actual suffering comes into our lives, with pain or trouble or frustration, we want that quick fix. So we swipe left or decide it's time to move on, try a new job, a new home, a new spouse, a new church, or even a new God. Patience doesn't come naturally. It comes spiritually. It comes through faith, the certain hope of the glory that awaits us, the eager expectation of our being revealed as God's children on the last day. We don't have it yet, but we know it's coming. We know it's true, and we know it's ours. So even when things seem to be spinning out of control, going from bad to worse, even when you see, it seems like you can't suffer anymore, just wait. Wait eagerly and patiently. Wait on the Lord. Your redemption is coming. Our suffering at the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. We will be liberated soon. Count on it. Wait for it. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.